Welcome to the Spine Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez, and thank you everybody for joining us. And also thank you for giving us a little bit of grace and having a little bit of patience as we start to provide content and, and value here on the podcast again. It's been a few months. Uh, we've kind of slowed down, you know, seeing patients and trying to run a practice and serve a community has really taken the forefront of our attention over most of this year. Uh, but as we start to look towards uh, the end of the year and moving towards next year, uh, we wanted to kind of re-engage the podcast and really start working towards a new series on how we can really start to integrate a lot of the other facets of medicine and health into helping to care for our patients. And one of the things that I really wanted to focus on was movement as medicine. Um, I think we talk about it a lot. I think if you go back through the 100 plus episodes that we have as we start going through these diagnoses and through the treatment algorithms, we always talk about you know physical therapy and lifestyle modifications and different ways that we can help patients that are pre uh, the medical intervention stage. But I think that we need to focus on it a little more. And obviously we've had uh, a couple of really fantastic physical therapists on, uh, particularly when we were discussing a lot of the uh, pelvic floor uh, physical therapy and, and persistent pelvic pain. But I would really like to kind of take a little bit more holistic approach over the next couple of episodes as we really think about movement and exercise and the way that it interacts with our bodies, interacts with aging, um, and really helps us to drive ourselves forward in health. Um, and obviously health being such a important component of the way that we present and think about things, um, you know, in terms of being able to improve our quality of life and be able to live the life that we are wanting to live. And so on this episode, uh, I had the great pleasure of being able to work with, with uh, Dr. Evan Hogger. He is one of the physical therapists at a local physical therapy group here in the Sacramento region uh, by the name of Kaim Physical Therapy. They have done some fantastic education, um, both through locally and through their website, uh, as well as on their uh, social media handles. Um, but Evan's a really, really great guy. Um, you know, history of being a, a college athlete and then kind of transitioning into uh, physical therapy and wellness and really performance coaching. And so, you know, kind of, I think this conversation is such a fun conversation that does skew a little bit more towards maybe the performance aspects of it, but we do bring it back and really try to focus on, you know, everybody as a continuum and a spectrum of, uh, and I'm stealing Evan's words here, but a spectrum of how we look at uh, movement and as we look at how we look at function. Um, And obviously some patients uh, or some people are on different, at places on that spectrum and how we're presenting. And so, you know, but it is, I think, a very similar approach. And I love the way that he uh, talks about it and thinks about it. And I think you guys are going to find a lot of value from this. Um, so by all means, check out um, his information and Kime's information in our show notes. Um, and please reach out to them and let them know that you appreciate it. And hopefully we'll be able to continue to provide a lot of value uh, that crosses the lines um between the physical therapy and the physical medicine side of our uh, practice uh, to be able to really think about movement and the way that we can incorporate um, movement and exercise into a healthful life, um, not just for, you know, patients at the very 
end spectrums of chronic pain, but also for all of us in our day-to-day lives. Uh, so without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Evan Hager. All right, everybody. I am here with Evan Hager, and we are going to be talking about movement as medicine. Um, Evan is a physical therapist uh, locally here in the area that does a lot of great education, as you guys just heard from our introduction. Um, and yeah, I mean, Evan, why don't you kind of start us off? And I know obviously you, you've got a lot of great information on some of the kind of epidemiology and thought process behind movement as medicine and how that kind of plays in. And then we'll kind of take it more clinical as we kind of progress this conversation. Yeah, awesome. Um, first off, thanks for having me. This is this is super cool. I respect what you guys do, and I've I've heard some of your podcast episodes, which are which are great. Um, so I'm I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know that there's this is just like it's like an unequivocal statement, but exercise is 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 probably the thing that we have the most research on to say that it that it will it can change the length of your life. There's probably not one thing we have that we can have we can pile more research up to say how positive it is for us. Um, I, if you look through all of the data, there's a number that kind of keeps coming out and they like show this number in some different ways. But the number that I always remember um, is that all cause mortality is decreased by 50%. If you, I can't remember the activity number, but it's whatever like the minimum requirements are based on the, um, uh, the sports medicine group. But uh, whatever the, the basic requirement is, it's a decrease of 50% of cardiovascular disease and all cause mortality. I mean, that, that's, that's about as simple as it gets. Right. And then I remember this, this study took it a step further as they were comparing like the two and a half percent, the top two and a half percent fittest people in the world to the bottom 25 percent. And it was something like a six fold increase or six fold decrease in, uh, in, in lifespan for that bottom 25 percent for the top two and a half percent. So there aren't a lot of things that we do that are like a linear progression of like uh, like more is better kind of thing. But more movement is is better. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the guidelines, I think you were talking about with the American college of sports medicine. Yeah. Um, and I believe uh, their current guidelines are 30 minutes um, on five days a week, which yeah, you know, I think for, right. for the vast majority of us is, is not an insane amount, right? I mean, their, their definition of activity is, you know, going for a walk or, you know, doing, you know, light, light aerobic activity is not necessarily, you know, a significant or, a, you know, cr- crazy workout or anything along those lines. Yeah, it's not a huge ask. I mean, but but when you you know you you deal with 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 average folks or regular people every day, and it, it is a huge ask for some people. You know, the way people's lives get shaped, or where they get bring, brought down by pain or other dysfunctions, and and you know just life stresses. It and you know to be honest, I think for some people, two and a half hours, they have a hard time wrapping their head around creating that creating that habit. But you know, if you prioritize, there's there's no reason not to be able to do it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as we were kind of talking about uh, some of this epidemiology getting ready, you know, got brought back to, you know, UC Davis and undergrad, is, which is where I went. I was an exercise biology major. And, you know, one of my favorite classes uh, was uh, the exercise of aging. Um, and so we had two, two phenomenal uh, professors uh, back there. So Dr. Schaefer um, and then Dr. Holly were the two main uh, PhDs that uh, taught a lot of the courses in the exercise bio class or uh, curriculum uh, way back, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but that was uh, one of my kind of most mind-blowing classes because it was very simple. It's exactly what you just said, right? Is you know, movement as a way of programming life, movement as a way of you know making sure that we're you know not just living, but making sure that we're functional and enjoying things as we continue to age. Uh, and and the data, like you said, is very 
impressive because it's not that much, you know, that barrier to entry is, is pretty low to be able to get a very significant uh, return on investment. Very significant return. And you can even break that down to, to all of the things that we know are going to shorten our lifespan, right? And exercise has a positive impact on basically all of those things. It has a positive impact on blood pressure. We know that's, a, that's an indicator of, of, of bad stuff coming. You've got a positive uh, um, indicator for diabetes, a big change in insulin resistance and that stuff, and change in lipids, change in how we deal with stress, which we can think of as probably a bigger deal. Um, we can literally change the endothelial lining of our blood vessels, which is amazing. Uh, vagal tone changes, nervous tone, nervous system changes, different types of cancers are shown there, not all types of cancers, but I mean, basically everything that kills us, we can positively impact with exercise. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. And so, you know, and there there's, you know, there's to take this even a step further, there's insurance companies that are, that's, I don't think it's legal yet, but the insurance companies have lobbied to, you know, if you're a healthier person, you have lower premiums. And uh, the, that would, the way you would measure that would, would be some blood panels and probably some exercise tests, like VO2 max being one of the better predictors of this. Yeah. I'm sure in your undergrad, you did a lot with that, would be my yeah. guess. Yeah, uh, VO2 <laughs> max testing, lactate threshold testing, those were, yeah. <laughs> those were the fun lab days. Yeah, super fun lab days. Put the mask on and run uphill on a treadmill until you want to pass out. <laughs> or there was, there was the bike test. I remember the bike one where you drop all the weight on it and uh, yep. yeah, yeah. that was called. That one, that one was gnarly though. Quad <laughs> quad pump, like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and and like you said, I mean, I think that you know there there are a lot of people that are looking into this. I think you know, obviously, we're we're not here to opine on you know things like uh, insur- insurance and things like those. But there, but insurances are are trying to at least push people towards exercise, right? I, I mean, I know you know regularly. I I have a Blue Cross Federal plan and. Blue Cross sends me emails all the time telling me about exercise and, and they, and they're trying to encourage ways that we can be more, uh, more fit by movement. And not to beat a dead horse, but why do they do that? What drives them, their bottom line and money, yeah. right? So you are fit and you are, if you exercise, you will save them money. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. It is, it is definitely not <laughs> altruism that, that's a dark more. way. That's a dark route to go. So I apologize. <laughs> Um, but um, so, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, as, so as we're thinking about it, I mean, obviously exercise is such a huge component of our, us as human beings living our lives to the most full con, uh, way that we can both lengthwise as well as, as quality wise. And, you know, and so as you guys are, or as you, as a, you know, as a therapist are thinking about this movement and how we can keep people moving and encourage that movement for people, like, can you give us a little bit of background into like how, how, how your thought process goes as you're starting to kind of use, use this as into more, maybe into a slightly more clinical realm? Yeah. So I I think thinking about different types of exercise here too, because those are potentially going to lead us down some, some different routes with this, right? So we talk about VO2 and somebody's aerobic capacity and how that's a a significant predictor of, of, of health and longevity. And so that might dictate a certain type of exercise. Um, But then we also need to think about strength training because strength training can potentially help build muscle mass and muscle mass can be protective for countless things, countless things that you see on a daily basis, like low bone density. And so you probably see a lot of fractures and spine fractures and other things like that that have to do with low bone density. Muscle mass is protective there. Uh, muscle mass is also protect, protective from a metabolic standpoint. There's a, um, we were talking about this article a second ago, a really cool article. Um, I can't remember when this is from, and I, we could probably put it in the show notes here. I can find it on my computer somewhere, but they looked at elite power lifters who were you know, technically obese. They had huge, massive BMI, large body fat percentage, but they also had a huge 
mass of, of muscle mass. And they found that they, they did lab tests on them and their lipids were a little bit not great, but not horrible. And their cholesterol is a little bit not great, but not horrible. But in somebody obese, you'd expect to see some level of insulin resistance. And they had, they had none of that. They had no insulin resistance, basically showing that the mass of muscle that they had built was protective against their obesity. So when we think about exercise, I think we've got to, we can, there's a lot of ways you can break this stuff down, but if you break it down to the kind of two simple pathways an aerobic pathway for cardiovascular and heart health, and then a kind of strength pathway to kind of maintain, build strength and muscle mass. Those are, those are kind of the two routes that I would, that I would think about and consider. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think, that, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, really good uh, data that, uh, promotes that, you know, both, obviously both sides are, are necessary for, you know, maintaining optimal health. You know, you know, if you, we talked about the ACSM uh, earlier, I mean, if you look at the American Heart Association, you know, generally speaking, they're a little bit more concerned uh, about, uh, about heart health and cardiovascular health. And so they tend right. to lean a little bit more towards, uh, towards that side of the spectrum. I think if you look at the um, uh, American Academy of Orthopedics and, and uh, you know, places where they're thinking a little bit more about bone density, you know, the, the weightlifting and weight bearing activities, you know, in particular, uh, tend to be a little bit more of where they're leaning because of obviously the way that they're interpreting uh, that data, right? Right. Yeah. Our biases will lead us both, you know, either way, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and so obviously we have, you know, these different ways of being able to approach uh, movement and, and, and exercise uh, as an overall healthy part of, of living. Um, but now as we start thinking about, you know, if something's going awry, right, whether that's, you know, some, you know, pain or, or, or dysfunction, let's call it, call it knee arthritis, or, you know, patients dealing with back pain, you know, how are we starting to, you know, now think about this movement and this med and, and all of these healthy benefits of exercise uh, in the process of trying to think about getting that person or patient back to, you know, the activities that they're liking, right? Um, yeah. I, I think a lot, a lot of times it's easy for me to kind of think about a patient in particular, just, you know, to be able to kind of set the, you know, set the frame of work, right? And so let's say we have, you know, a 60-year-old female that really loves to you know, spend time with her grandkids, go to all of their sporting events, you know, she does some babysitting on weekends uh, and golf is a really big love for her. But recently her, her knee pain's really been causing a lot of problems, right? She's not able to walk at 18 knee gets stiff and sore towards the end. Um, and so she's trying to think of, uh, of how she can continue doing those things that she loves. Cause obviously she's, she's young, right? She's 60. She's entering, you know, the, the golden age of golden her life. years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. And she wants, yeah. she wants to be able to do all those things that she was sold them um, from the TV ads before that she was to look right. forward to in retirement. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of ways to go here. And I think like, you know, your realm and our realm are, are kind of like collaborative in this way, but we kind of have different ways to look at this stuff, right? You're going to give a, a very medical diagnosis to somebody like that. Whereas I can't really do that where the way physical therapists in our practice, way we'll look at things. We look at it from a movement perspective. So essentially my job is to figure out what is the life that this person wants to live, right? And you kind of alluded to something there that I think is, is really, really critical here because somebody might come to see you or might come to see me because their knee hurts. And if you don't ask, if you just, you know, if you're looking down at your computer or your notebook while you're talking to them, that might all be that comes up and then you grade it on a scale of zero to 10, seven out of 10, great. And then you move on. Okay, we'll deal with your pain and do this. But at the end of the day, they are not really in your office because their knee hurts or they're not in my office because the knee hurts. They're coming to see us because they cannot do something that they want to do. Mm -hmm. There's something like really meaningful them or some, to them or something that they're passionate about 
or that gives them meaning or, or, you know, just fun in their life that they can't do. Maybe this six-year-old can't, you know, chase around her grandkids the way she wants to, or maybe like you said, she can't golf the way she wants to like enjoy the golden years or whatever. So there's, there's, it's, I think it's critically important for us as practitioners to get down to that thing, get down to that piece, that like really meaningful thing that, and so you can tap into that with somebody. Cause at the end of the day, especially for, for us, our process with people is not, you know, one visit and then done, like we might need to see somebody for some time. So there has to be some level of like trust and buy-in. So it's really critical that we get down to that, like kind of nitty gritty. And, you know, there's sometimes there's, there's tears that come along with that. Cause you know, people sometimes have been paying for a long time. They're really passionate about these things they can't do. So I think that that's super critical and you kind of hit on that. So I wanted to highlight that, but like I said, essentially my job or our job as PT is we got to figure out what's the life that this per- person wants to live and then where are they at right now? So we think about everybody on a, on a continuum of movement, you, me, I'm in a facility, hopefully you can't hear these cracking bats in the back of a facility full of, full of baseball players right now. Um, whoever, the six-year-old woman, everybody lives on this continuum of movement. We're either all the way on this left side, um, you know, in pain and unable to move, or over here on the right, forming at whatever our highest level is. And so there's a continuum here. We all live in here somewhere. And on this continuum, there's some different buckets that we've got to fill. We got to have the requisite mobility to be able to get to the positions we want to do. We've got to have the requisite strength and stability and motor control to be able to accomplish those, those tasks that we need to do. We need to have the aerobic capacity to accomplish those tasks. If the task requires power or speed, we need to have the tissue capacities and the joint capacities to be able to handle those types of forces. Um, you know, and then there's obviously the skill of whatever that is, which is probably outside the scope of what we're talking about, but everybody lives on this, this realm somewhere. And so the six-year-old woman, you know, maybe the top end performance for her is walking 18 holes, playing golf, going on a hike with her, with her grandkids, some up and down elevation. And so when she comes in to see us, we've got to figure out that, that point B, what is that that she wants to do that she's missing? What's that like deep rooted thing that she can't get? And then the assess- assessment process that we go through is, hey, here's where we're at, here's what we need. And then our whole job, put super simply, is like connect those dots. Yeah. What capacities do we need to build? What, what, what tone do we need to downregulate? What pain do we need to help get handled? What, what boxes do we need to check so that we can get from point A uh, to point B? Yeah, no, I, I love that. I mean, I think it makes it so simple and so uh, comprehensible for, for patients and for all the providers that are out there too, right? I mean, obviously, you know, thinking of, of function and, and quality of life as, as a spectrum, I think makes it a, a whole lot easier to really understand like, okay, we're not thinking about, you know, Mrs. X's knee, we're, we're thinking about her ability to, to do what she truly wants and what, and, and thinking about her, her function as, uh, you know, something that goes up to that, that level that allows her to do all of those things. Right. Completely. And so part of this is like for our clinicians to be able to communicate with each other. Right. So we communicate, hey, this person's living like right here, here are the things we're working on in this phase, things we're working on in this phase. And so there's communication there. But I think the bigger part of this is, is the communication back to the patient. Like I said, there's a huge buy-in process that people need to go on like a, you know, three, four month journey to change, to change their life. Right. Yeah. And I used to like literally draw this thing out on a whiteboard. We have these, actually have one right here. I don't know why I have it, but I have, we have these little whiteboards at all of our little table stations. So I'd like get it out and I draw this continuum and I'd show them, hey, this is where you're at. These are things we need to work on. Here's the buckets we need to fill. And then we got real smart. I don't have one with me, but we made these little booklets that have that graphic and some other graphics in it. So that, we, you know, when our PTs are going through their evaluations, they got the little talking points and things to write on. But yeah, I think it's super powerful for people to, to see it because, you know, you went to school for, 
much longer than I did, by the way, but we went to school for a long time. Right. So we, we learned a lot of things. And I think sometimes it's, 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 especially for like a young clinician, I'm sure you see this in your practice, a young clinician for us here, it's very hard for them to, you know, communicate these dysfunctions and the things that they see to somebody, yeah. but still like, you know, show them that like glimmer of hope here on the side. Yeah. And I think this, this like continuum and this map kind of really, kind of really shows it actually stole this sort of stole this idea from, um, you know, Dan John is, never heard that name. He's a, he's a strength conditioning coach. He's, he's, he's a, he's an incredibly smart dude. So I've, I've learned a lot from strength conditioning coaches because it's, I think it's so similar to our field. And I think it's something that PT was missing, but he used to have these things called pirate maps like treasure maps, basically. So he'd call them pirate maps. And it was like, here's how you get from point A to point B. And I remember this very early on in our practice, but um, uh, three partners and myself and uh, Kathy is our director of operations. We're all sitting at this conference, listening to Dan John talk and pirate maps. He just kept saying it. And like, we all were kind of like looking at each other like, oh, oh, hmm. and so then we kind of went back and like built this, the, this continuum idea. And it's, it's been a really effective way to communicate this back to um, back to the patients, I think. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think for any, anybody who is a healthcare provider that's listening, like, I mean, I think what you're highlighting is just the ability to communicate effectively with patients, right? I mean, you know, the, I, I think the continuum is a, a phenomenal way of thinking about it, but I mean, obviously in all ways that we try to communicate with patients, it, you know, communication is at the end of the day, what we're all going to be judged on, what, no matter how smart, no matter how many studies we've read, no matter how many books we've accomplished and, you know, certificate certifications or, or you know, whatever are on the wall. Like if we can't communicate that in a way that the person sitting next to us understands uh, and accepts, probably mo most importantly, right? Not just necessarily understands. They, they they don't need to conceptualize it only. They need to be able to fully accept it and 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 like you already used the the phrase, buy into that as what's going to take them to that next step. So I'm going to make a really firm statement here, but I think I'm going to stand behind it, and you can you can walk me back if we need to. <laughs> but uh, so I I would say, and I, and I see this kind of. In, in our practice and other practice I've, I've seen around the country, I think that a, a clinician that is, and I'm talking about PTs here, but I think this applies across the board, PTs that communicate excellently, like an excellent communicator, but a, maybe a moderate skilled clinician, I think they are going to be more successful than a moderate communicator, excellent skilled clinician. Yeah. I think the excellent communicator that has moderate skills is going to be a more effective clinician. There's, there's a really good study, and this was actually done on primary care uh, physicians. There's a massive study. I, again, we could throw out the show notes. I can find it somewhere, but um, it was uh, basically the single biggest predictor of, of a successful outcome for a patient. The single biggest predictor was their rating of their, of their doctor, essentially yep. whether they liked their doctor or not was the single big best predictor of a good outcome. Yep. That's freaking nuts. Yeah. Yeah. We got that, no that, communication. Nobody, nobody in school tells you to read how to win friends and influence people. Nobody in school tells you to like communicate. Well, they say like, Hey, mobilize this on this and you know, this and this, and this is where this muscle goes. And, but man, communication is such, I, I think is, is a, a really critical piece. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, that, that study has then, I think been even taken, you know, a lot of the things that they end up telling us, you know, in residency and throughout our training is like, okay, you know, if, if, the, if the patient likes you, you're sick and feel less likely to get sued and all, you know, it's been kind of follow, followed in a lot of different routes, but it, it's all kind of based in the same thing, right? It's that's how they can, get buy-in from the doctors. It's right. It's right. It's right. <laughs> you know, if you want to, you want to figure out how to uh, motivate a, a young physician, uh, it's scare the crap out of them. That is, uh, that is correct. Yeah, right. Um, 
but but it, you know i think it, it all fits into that same thing right if you can communicate well if you can get people to to like you and to buy into what you're doing then obviously they're going they're going to do better period and and yeah and, and you're going to be more successful as a clinician and so like you said i i i completely agree with that i think the you know regardless of I think it, it's also not just in healthcare. I think that's across the board in all absolutely of life, right? Absolutely, you can, you can be you know a B, a B plus student. I never want to call you know I don't want to call physicians you know poor students, but obviously they're great students. But like you know yeah. you can you can be at that you know a very good level, but be an excellent communicator and end up with a phenomenal outcomes because once yeah. people once people believe once people get it, it that's all that matters. Yeah. And I, I think like, it's the wrong idea for people to think that this is, it's like a sales process. Like it, it, you know, it kind of is, but it's really not. It's really like, this really comes from, I, I, I think the main ingredient in this is like true caring in, in the outcomes of true caring and what happens to the person, like genuinely caring about the person because yeah. people can freaking read that, man. I mean, that's the, you can't fake that. You really can't fake caring. It's very yeah. hard to, at least, especially in, especially in our practice when we see people, you know, not once a month, but like, you know, a couple times a week, sometimes at most, maybe once a week, but we see people enough. And for a longer period of time, like you just can't take that. You have to truly care. And if you truly care and it truly comes out, then people tend to tend to be, you know, buy in a little bit more. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that, I, I think that's a hundred percent right. Um, one thing that I wanted to kind of uh, bring back into, into the fold of our kind of clinical discussion, we kind of hit on it when we were chatting earlier, but, you know, you brought up, you know, obviously you brought up the spectrum and, you know, the spectrum being different for, for each individual patient, you know, whether that's, you know, a high level performing athlete, uh, you know, your average, uh, you know, weekend warrior or, you know, grandma that down the street. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. I, you know, you, you also brought up the, the idea that, you know, it's still the same spectrum, even for, you know, say a patient that's, you know, really limited their, their function and quality of life uh, over time, right? Say somebody that's been dealing with severe chronic pain for 20 years and they've, you know, found it now, now they're to the point where walking to the bathroom is, is a challenge, mm -hmm. right? You know, you, you, you brought up earlier, like it, it's still a spectrum and it's still that same spectrum that you're, you're working on. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think that the, that the concept changes, but how you frame the concept to somebody might have to change this is where your communication comes back in, right? It's not like a brand new toolbox of exercises or some like awesome technique for the person in, cro in chronic pain or cool manual technique. It's, it's none of that. It's, it's how you communicate what you're doing. And then, you know, maybe your approach with somebody, like how you speak to somebody, not even what you say, but how you say it is incredibly important. Like this, these, we're going to have all these pro baseball guys coming in now for their off season. I'm going to talk to them incredibly differently than the 55 year old woman who's, you know, who's had chronic knee pain for the last 15 years, the tone of my voice, what I say, how I say it, the tests you put them through like 55 year old person that's in a lot of pain. We're probably not even going to do a lot of tests on day one. We're just going to talk. I'm going to let her tell me the whole story, all of the things that, that have, you know, that this has impacted and changed in her life and how she's felt about it and let her get all of that off her chest. And um, you know, like just sit there and, and listen, like, like close my freaking mouth. Right. I've, I've, uh, I heard this said really well one time and I've repeated it multiple times, uh, recently, but I think in, in our world, in my world and in yours, we do a lot better being interested than interesting. Mm -hmm. So when I hear a PT, like talking too much and telling stories about themselves to a person, they don't know that well yet. You gotta like, you tell them to like put a button on it and just start listening because the person is probably going to give you the answers here. She's going to tell me what she needs. This 55 year old woman, she's going to tell me exactly where we need to enter and what we need to start with. Um, and, and then you figure out that entry point. And then for her, it's probably much slower progressions. You know, think of like, um, in actually in, in psychology, they talk about, um, graded exposure, right? So you grade the exposure to like, a 
you know, a, um, a traumatic stimulus. So in, in our, in our world, we might grade the exposure to like a, a fearful stimulus or like a noxious stimulus of some kind. And so we might slowly grade the exposure and man, you got to be patient with some of these people. These people have been pain for a really long time. Their systems are so highly sensitized, um, that you really, your progressions have to be very slow. You have to be very patient. I always give these people this this talk that um, I think is helpful. So I draw this, I draw on a whiteboard. I don't have this graphic out yet, but I say here, you know, here's what you're doing and here's what you're feeling. This is your pain and this is what you're doing. And there are two lines. And right now, when you do something, your pain spikes up with it, right? So this, this, you bump up your activity, boom, this happens with it. Or oh, you start walking downstairs, boom, your knee starts hurting. What we need to ultimately do, I can't promise that we're going to like, you know, wipe this out. Some people are looking for just take my pain away and then I'll start moving again. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's rarely possible if ever, right? So what we really need and what I need them to buy into is we need to start separating these lines, right? Even if this doesn't change, but what we can, we can do a little more without that spike, that's a win. And I need them to understand that. We need to start separating these lines. The more we separate these lines, the more we focus on function um, and not disability or not, you know, pain, I think the, the better this is. And so that's a, that's a tough, you know, um, discussion and turn. And that, that can take like multiple weeks to kind of get somebody in that, but, and sometimes longer than that, but you need to focus on function and not, uh, and not the pain and not the, not the, um, not the disability. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the things that you brought up earlier was like, you know, we're, we're talking on the spectrum and, you know, obviously, you know, those are, we dealing with that patient who's been in pain for many, many years, you know, it's going to be, you know, you're going to kind of slow it down and you're not going to do some of those higher level activities. You're going to kind of sh show them the different lines and try to help them to, you know, learn how to create movement without necessarily fearing the pain that comes with that movement. Um, yeah. You know, I think the, the way you brought it, uh, brought up earlier was like, you know, it, it's the, it's the same spectrum as every other person has it's just a different time frame, right? And I and I think that's totally it's a it's and a, a different very, endpoint, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think I think that makes it a, a, so much more palatable for for people to understand because you know it's we're still talking about the same thing, right? You're still talking about you know maximizing function, you know, to whatever that maximum is, but it is just you know you you have different starts, different ends, and, and different pace at which you're going to be getting there. Right. And you and you might like you might like. You might not have this discussion. You might think about it a little bit different with somebody else. Again, say one of these baseball players come in and it you know, only hurts when he throws 95, right? Okay, but his elbow starts hurting a little bit. Maybe we do have to hone in on the pain. I need him to think about it. We need to figure some things out there. So you might like have a different focus there. Whereas with this, you know, this other person that's been in chronic pain for a long period of time, I need to get them away from that. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want them to talk about it. I mean, you give them, let them give the whole story, but we need to start focusing, give them some objectives, some goals, some functional tasks, functional things to try to achieve, yeah. show them, like start giving them little bits of confidence. Cause you know, I, I don't, I don't have any data to, to support this really, but the amount of people that are in chronic pain that also show you know, very, very clear signs of, of depression and, and, and mood disorders, like probably brought on by being in chronic pain for a long period of time. Like you have to give them little bits of confidence by no means am I that kind of therapist. And so I'm not, you know, if you see those signs, like refer out, obviously. And a lot of these people that I see there are seeing pain psychologists or, or talking to somebody about this already, but yeah. absolutely refer out if, if you know, if, if you don't, they're not, but um, but you have to give them like little bits of confidence, help them slowly build confidence and, and think about what are the tasks of life they need to do. They probably need to be able to get up from the floor. They probably need to be able to carry maybe 20 pounds of groceries in and out of their house. Maybe there's stairs involved in that. You know, probably I think a, a good basic baseline thing for people, even as they age, is you should be able to cover the distance of three miles in one hour. 
I think you can come up with some basic functional things and you tailor it to the individual, giving them a blanket thing never works. This has to be meaningful to them. And so that's what I meant earlier about saying that we got to get into the things that they really, really, truly care about. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's what it's gotta be. Oh, awesome. Evan, I love it, man. I think, I think those are are great takeaways. And, you know, like I said, in, in, from, from everything we talked about, it's amazing how, you know, being able to properly communicate and properly show people, you know, it, and, and relate to people is really such a, an important aspect of it. I know for, for me personally, I will definitely take away that spectrum. I love that, uh, that idea that you brought up. And, and I think it, it communicates so well to patients and to, you know, even to the, the other providers in, in our practice, of how, you know, especially those earlier in their career that I think can, can use help communicating that. Um, I, I appreciate you for uh, bringing that in. Um, and, and I appreciate you for joining me today. And I, I hope that yeah, this is the, the start of uh, a few more episodes where we can kind of dive deeper into some, uh, some pretty awesome stuff, man. Honestly, yeah, I'd be happy to come back and do some more. Awesome. All right, everybody, I will have Evan's contact info in the show notes. Uh, if you guys have questions for him, please reach out uh, and we will talk to you next week. Now for that legal disclaimer, this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.